But if you are in the Gospel of Luke, turn with me to chapter 1, verse 46, and we will read down through 55 together the song of praise that Mary sang to our Lord. Luke chapter 1, verse 46. Again, let me read down through verse 55, and then we will pray. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. And he has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Let's pray. Father, again, we come before you in prayer, praising you for your word. Lord, I don't know what we would do if we did not have the unshakable foundation of truth upon which to stand. This world would spin out in chaos without the foundation of the Word of God. The stars would fall from the heavens and nothing would live. Everything would fall in death without us being able to stand firmly on the Word of God. And Father, I praise you that you have filled us with the Spirit of God, that we might understand the Word of God, and that the Spirit might take the Word that is planted within our hearts and bring forth fruit for your glory. And that fruit would manifest itself in character as we are molded and shaped into the image of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would fill us all with your Spirit this morning. Me, as I speak, make my words clear Make them faithful to the text and fill them with compassion for your people and help all of us respond to the word of God with great humility, with great thankfulness, having heard the very words of God and a great desire to see the word of God again bear fruit in our lives. Lord, we praise you. We love you for the opportunity at worship that we have been given. Now, may we, by your power, make the most of it. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. I think it was several weeks ago, and now I, I don't remember how many weeks I spent time in, in Proverbs 4 talking to the men, I think for three or four weeks. And so I thought I would spend some time this morning speaking to mothers, especially since it was Mother's Day. But don't worry, I don't intend at all to spiritually beat up on the moms like I did the men. I, I don't want you to leave here bloodied and bruised quite like they did. But it is a whole lot easier uh, to talk about and to the women than it is to the men because it seems as though 
the women as far as being godly goes, it seems to come much easier for them, especially mothers, because many of them seem to have this God-given, almost natural ability to love and to care and to be kind, especially for their own children. And I do realize that there are exceptions to the rule. In fact, we're seeing some of those exceptions today, and I don't understand how it could be. And if it was not for Romans 1, I would not understand it at all. But it is plainly clear that God has given us over to depraved minds as these things take place, as we turn life into some sort of political issue. And we see mothers be more concerned for just whatever they want to do versus the life of their own children. It is bizarre to say the least, but I think, I hope the majority, even among the lost women, still have that desire that's woven into the fabric of their hearts that demonstrates love and and care for their children and just willing to sacrifice everything like every woman in this building has not only for their own kids, but just for all of these children that's in their lives. Now, when we talk about mothers, I know we've never been into Thessalonians before, and I tend to go there one day, but Paul uses a mother's example to describe his care for the church. He would say in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, we, meaning the apostles and the leaders there at the church, we prove to be gentle among you. That word means caring or kind. We demonstrated gentleness or kindness among you just as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. So the Apostle Paul knew that moms were, was the perfect illustration of how we need to love the church. But it wasn't just Paul. The Lord God himself used mothers, if you will, as an illustration to describe his care and protection of his people. In Psalms 91.4, the Lord says in regard to a, a, a motherly or a, a, a female bird, a mother bird, he describes himself as covering you with my pinions and under his wings, he says, you may seek refuge. And so the father says, here's an illustration for, I, for how I care for you. Think of me as a mother bird in which you can gather up under my wings and be safe from whatever is out there that may harm you or frighten you. Now, when you think about the women of the Bible, the overwhelming majority of them are godly. You think about Sarah and, and Ruth and, and walking forward and all of that. You, you hear about them in the New Testament about how godly they were and certainly they were. And I find it fascinating that when I talk to the men, the example that we always run to is Christ. Because you think about Moses being humble, yet his humility pales in comparison to the humility of Christ, right? Or you think about Joshua and his leadership, his victories that he led the nation of Israel on. Well, those victories pale in comparison to the great victor who has won our victory over sin and death. And you think about David, the magnificent king, and you could talk about his kingship, but why would you talk about David's kingliness when you can talk about the great king himself, the Lord Jesus Christ? So I don't really know why on Mother's Day or when you want to talk to women, you want to talk about the women's examples in the Old Testament 
because what you see in their lives are bits and pieces and fragments and pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So for all of us, our example will forever be the Lord Jesus Christ because he is perfect in every way. And so when we think about the women, you always have to turn just like with the men. You always have to turn to Christ as the model for those who truly seek to glorify God in their lives. But even saying that, the mother of our Lord is without question a tremendous example for us, especially when you consider her age and when you consider the circumstances that she was under when the Lord began to work in her life. Her response that we read this morning is, well, it's just absolutely mind blowing. The grace of God toward her and the power of God in her is on display as she writes these words for us in Luke chapter one. It's, it's godly character to the nth degree. It's absolutely amazing. And obviously I could spend weeks on this, but I'd really just want to spend a few moments on this and point out three characteristics that we see in the Lord's mother this morning that all of us need to just really run after to apply them to our lives. And the first of those, if you'll notice with me back in verse 38, before the song even began to be sung, we hear some amazing words from the Lord's mother. Look at Luke 1, verse 38. Mary says, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. Now, I remain convinced that there is no attribute more godly than that of humility. And humility in a woman makes her very soul beautiful beyond compare. Humility for all of us is something that we should all pray for, pursue constantly, and resist pride and those fleshly desires in our life. But here we come to this word again. This word bond slave, and this time it's the Lord's mother who uses it. In fact, if you'll notice in verse 38, she uses the word behold, and it's very emphatic. She says, now look at me. Look at me, she responds to the angel. Behold, look at me. I am the Lord's bond slave. I am the Lord's servant. And I didn't pick this passage out because this word was here. I mean, I, the Lord placed on my heart Mary's worship, and I, I began to read it this week, and I found that word again, and I thought, my goodness, here we are with this same word that we've talked about the last several weeks, and I'm beginning to come, become convinced that someone's simply not listening. And then I realized, and it's probably me. This is the word that will reshape your life when you really begin to consider yourself the slave of the Lord, the one that has been purchased out. And I know no, no better way to describe it than to say it's someone who has willingly laid down their personal rights and their privileges in order to take up the service of the Lord. Last week, I told you that there, every single New Testament writer refers to themselves as the servant of the Lord or as the bond slave. Paul, James, Peter, Jude, John, all of them use the same word. But I don't think I've told you this. In Isaiah 42, the heavenly father refers to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as my servant, capital S. 
And it's the exact same word. It's the word evid that I pointed out last week. It can be translated slave. It can be translated servant. Certainly when we see the Lord Jesus comes, he lays down himself all of his privileges to take on flesh and walk in the will of God. He made himself the slave, if you will, or the servant of the Almighty. And we asked this question last week, is this how we should think of ourselves? Of course, you know the answer to that, but I found a few more passages as I considered the word further this week. Paul commands preachers with this term. This is how Paul refers to a preacher. Now, I've shared this with young preachers before. Second Timothy chapter two, Paul says the Lord's slave or the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. And I strive and struggle to make that define me. And I am certainly not there yet. I thought to myself, if I ever preached a preacher's conference, which that's never going to happen, but I would have to convince them that we're not the Lord's celebrities. We're not the center of attention. We're the ones that get the seat in the back, the last table in the fellowship hall. We're the most insignificant ones. And the reason for that is because that's what God tells us to do. We are the slaves of the Lord. And I constantly, even now, say to myself, are you listening to what you're saying? But Peter's instruction to us all, Peter will use that word in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, act like free men, but do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. And it's interesting how now Peter will take the idea of freedom and slavery and put them side by side. And he says, oh, you've been set free. You don't, you, it's embarrassing how free you are in Christ. I mean, it's absolutely shameless freedom that you've been set free from all sin. You've been set free from death and you've been set free from the law. There are no requirements on your life to reconcile your relationship to God Everything has been satisfied and paid in full on your behalf. His righteousness alone has reconciled you to the Father. And we don't bring one ounce, one measure, one smidgen of righteousness as an offering to God. He would sweep it off the table in disgust. It is the Son's righteousness upon which we stand. You're free. Ridiculously free. But now Peter says this, now take your freedom and run to Christ and make yourself a slave and enjoy the freedom of being the Lord's slave. It's almost impossible for us to grasp, is it not? But listen, once you truly understand that Jesus Christ has not only paid it all on your behalf, but continually meets all your needs, then you're free to become the servant of everyone you meet. 
once you understand that I can seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all my needs will be given over to me, then I'm absolutely free to say, here I am, Lord. Let me serve you and everyone I meet today. I am no longer concerned for myself, for you surely are a faithful God and provider for me. So you have to get that. And I think that comes natural for moms or easier for moms than it does for any of us because that's exactly what they do for their kids. Paige sat up with mom the other night and I laughed and I said, oh, it's been about 18 years since you sat up all night watching over somebody. And she said, yeah, I guess it has. But that's what moms do. They'll sit up all night for their children, Right. But that's the kind of thing that we're called to as Christians. We're called to set up all night because who are we? We have no needs. We have absolutely nothing we want for the Lord has given us all of our desires, all of the things that we truly need. So why would I ever, as we always say, look out for number one? What is that? For Christ has looked out for me. What more could I do for myself than what he's already done for me? Right? And so we're absolutely free to be humble and to take up the role as a servant. This is the greatest expression of humility that you can ever find. To, com to, to express humility toward God saying, Father, I'm your servant today. Now listen, I'm not talking about stop being a teacher I'm not talking about stop being an engineer or, or stop being all that you do. No, no, no. That's the very thing you do as you serve the Lord. I bet Michael gets this. You go into situations and you're only there to minister to a need. And you can do that as a teacher or as a mother or as a father or as a pharmacist or as anything else in this room because Christ has met all your needs so you can be the very best at everything because you don't have to consider yourself. I'm simply here to serve 110% because all my needs have already been met in Christ. Now I'm, I'm getting, I'm growing in this myself as I got on my knees concerned for my mom yesterday. Rolled out of bed, fell on my knees and I said, okay, gonna need help breathing today, by the way. You'll have to make my heart beat in my chest. If I speak, you'll have to give me the words. If I think, you'll have to give me the thoughts because I really don't think I can do this today. But that should be our prayer every day, yes? How arrogant are we to get out of our beds and think, I can do today by myself? I'll catch up with you on my lunch break, Lord. But I've just got so much I need to do right now. We'll talk later. How arrogant are we to do those things? When I look at Mary and when she says, behold, I want you to look at me, Lord. I'm your slave. I'm thinking there's no greater expression of humility than that. And we have the example before us in this precious mother. Second thing, and I got to move on, is her commitment to the word of God or the will of God. Look back at verse 38. 
Mary said, behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me. I'll come back to that part. According to your word. Behold, Lord, I'm your slave. May it be done to me exactly, if you will, according to what you have said. Let me say this. A commitment to the word of God is a commitment to the will of God. And it's fascinating to me how everyone likes to talk about the will of God. But it's not mystical. It's not magical. It's not hidden from us. And we have to search and find it. The will of God is expressed in the word of God because the word of God is the will of God. It's not waiting for us to find it and take hold of it. It's not waiting for us to make the will of God come to pass. God's not just sitting up there twiddling his thumbs, hoping somehow that Chris might take up the will of God and it might get done today. It's not at all what's going on here. The will of God is being accomplished sovereignly and powerfully. The only question that remains is are we going to respond to whatever it is by faith? Are we going to hear it, receive it, and walk in it? Look with me back at verse 31, if you will, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Notice what the angel says to Mary in Luke 1, verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the painfully obvious question. How can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the son of God. That's not a question. Mary, I didn't ask you. Got an idea? Want to run it past you? Like to see what you think? And want to see if you would take this up and accomplish my will on on my behalf? Would you do that for me? That's nowhere found in these passages. That's not how the will of God works. Okay? The will of God is what God is doing. And it's our response that can either glorify him or dishonor him. And when you think about this, what in the world could be more glorious than to be used for what Mary is about to be used for? She's about to bring the Savior of the world into the world. There's nothing more glorious. I don't know of a human being that's participated in something more glorious than Mary. And at the same time, I don't know of a greater burden that the Lord has laid upon a human being than to be a virgin in the first century, betrothed to be married among the Jewish people, and now you're going to be pregnant. So we've got the most glorious thing that has ever happened, and one of the most difficult things that you could possibly muster, and the angel says, this is what's going to happen. And you see what Mary responds. Now, behold, the servant of the Lord, may it be done to me according to exactly what you have said. You know what an American would say? Well, now hold on, Lord. Let's think about this. I think there's a better way to get this done. I don't think we have to do it that way. 
Let me think on it. Let me pray about it. And then I'll get back to you and, and see whether or not we're going to walk through it that way or if we're going to do it this way. That's how we think the will of God works. But that's not how it works at all. Really, the only thing, like I said, the only thing in question is, how are you going to respond to what God is doing now in your life and through your life? And let me tell you how you're going to respond. Not well. It's time for us to grow up. We look at the world and we think it's coming apart at the seams. No, the Lord is pulling the seams right where he wants to pull them out. And we can either respond by faith and thanksgiving and prayerfully and patiently waiting on him to accomplish what he's doing. Or we could become bitter and complain and all the things that we do now. But notice how her commitment to the Lord was reflected in her response. Look back at verse 38. Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done. And look at the next two words. To me. She went the whole way. You know, Father, Lord in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how we were commanded to pray. But for Mary, his will was going to change, affect radically her life. So not only does she say, may it be done. But she says, no, no, behold, may it be done to me. It's very reminiscent, if you will, and I know what you're thinking of our Lord in the garden before Calvary when he died, when he said, not my will, but your will be done. It's amazing to me how the Lord, before he ever came, says almost exactly the same thing in Hebrews 10, 7, when the Lord says, behold, same word, behold, Father, I have come to do your will, O God. Almost exactly what Mary says. And then the night before he dies, not my will. Let me reiterate, Father, not my will, but your will be done. You know, there's so much going on here that I could talk about. I'm, I mean, there's the element of understanding. It's according to his word that implies you understand his word. There's the element of trust here. May it be done to me. I mean, it is to recognize and rejoice in the sovereignty of God. This is what's happening, and I rejoice. This is what God is doing to me, and I rejoice. In everything. In sickness, yes. Cancer, yes. Death, yes. Because God is sovereign. And this is what's being done to me, and I rejoice in what God is doing because I trust his hand. Last thing I want you to see, and really it's why I went to this passage, it was her heart of worship. Look back with me and, and let me read just a few passages of this again. Look at verse 46 of chapter one. And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Steve taught me that word mighty and that word great. It's really the same word. It's the word mega. 
It literally says the mega one has done mega things for me. But I want you to notice her worship. First, let's look at a little bit of the detail and then we'll look at the heart behind it. Verse 47, she's worshiping God for who he is. In God, my Savior. Look at verse 49. He's the mighty one. End of 49. It says, holy is his name. Verse 50, he is the merciful one who has mercy upon generation after generation. In other words, Mary understands the character of God and she's worshiping God for his character. We need to learn to do that. We like to worship God when things go our way, but you need to understand God's character does not change. And so we can worship God for who he is at any time. Notice with me, she worships God for what he's done. Follow with me in in 51, and I'll just touch on the first few words. Notice all that the Lord has accomplished. He has done mighty deeds. He has scattered those who are proud. 52, he has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who are humble. 53, he has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. 54, he has given help to Israel, his servant. Mary's worshiping God for who he is, but she's also worshiping God for what he has done. And she understands what he has done. And then this is my point because I want us to grow in our worship. And the way that you grow in your worship is by growing in your understanding of Scripture. Worship is not motivated, if you will, by your heart. Worship is motivated by what you understand. Mary's spouting off things here that are absolutely profound. And it becomes the basis for her worship. But not just that. She's worshiping him with the absolute wholeness of her being. Look at verse 46. And we've been talking about this on on Wednesday nights. My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. What is she representing? What is she saying? Is she breaking herself down individually? Not at all, is she? Y'all know who's been with me on Wednesday night. She's saying, with every molecule and ounce of my being, I worship. Now you think about our worship. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but even this morning, did you find your mind somewhere else? when we were singing songs of praise. It's a real struggle for me because I know I'm not, I keep telling, you're not responsible for everything that happens, yet I sit there worrying about everything that happens from the time Rob gets up here to do the announcements till the time we pray and leave. And I have to keep telling myself, you're supposed to be in worship. You're supposed to be in worship. You're not supposed to be. Thinking, doing, and moving in all these parts. You're not supposed to be doing that. Worship. And I know, or I guess, that you're a lot like me. Well, I've got to do this this afternoon. And, you know, I wonder how this is going. And Mary's like, no. Listen, my soul is lifted in praise to God. My spirit has been raptured into his presence. And I am worshiping my heavenly father. Hey, it's hard to get there. In fact, you won't get there without the Spirit of God. And you'll have to beg God to capture 
your thoughts and the attention of your hearts just so you can worship him suitably. But look at her joy. And I don't like a whole lot here. Verse 47, my spirit has rejoiced in God. It's it's a victory cry. And, you know, I can only think of a couple of things in my life. Where I, I, I just really felt like shouting. And it's probably pretty similar for you. When the child was born, when your first child, second child, third child was born, you just felt like. Just want to shout what God had done. And some of you are beginning to experience this when they come to faith in Christ. You're right there again. Just want to shout. Just want to praise God from the depth of my soul. And I can't wait to see all that for you. But at the same time, I got silly examples. I don't know of a volleyball game that Abby didn't win or a baseball game that John didn't win that I, I didn't shout. I just raptured in the moment, just rejoicing, so excited about the victory, right? And that's what Mary's doing. She's understood there's been a great victory because God has fulfilled his promise and he has sent a savior. And notice what she says in verse, the second part of verse 48. For behold, same word, this time on all generations will count me blessed. Man, she knows exactly what's going on. God is fulfilling his promise and they're going to do it through me. And I'm going to be the one to give birth to the savior of the world. Every single generation, and certainly it's been true for over 2,000 years, we count her blessed. And so she's in the midst of this great victory. God has shed favor on her like no one ever before. She's rejoicing in the favor of God. She's shouting from the depth of her soul. But you do realize the reason that she's shouting from the depth of her soul is the same reason that we can shout from the depth of our soul. Because her blessing has come to us. She gave birth to our Savior. And the reason she shouts and she rejoices in God is the reason we shout, we rejoice in God. Because death has been defeated. The sting is gone. And when we lie on that bed, beloved, pray that a smile spreads across your face because you are blessed. Because it means nothing to you. It means absolutely nothing for you because God has sent his son to save. Her victory is our victory. Very last thing that I want you to see, and it's a very simple word. Verse 47. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, my Savior. You know, I'm not the only one that tools in this church with the word of God. I'm not the only one that spent time studying the word of God even yesterday, perhaps even this morning. 
It is the word of God that you need to understand. It is the word of God that needs to be the foundation for your life and for your joy. But the one thing I cannot do is to make you know him as your personal savior. The one thing I cannot do is lead you into personal, holy communion with a God that you know and more blessedly, he knows you. And that's where you need to be every day. You know, I found something interesting in college. The Lord blessed me. I was a fool. Still don't know that I knew the Lord at all when I went off to college. And he gave me a roommate named Chris, Chris Milliken. He was that kid in high school that he actually beat Tim Tebow. I always had John 3.16 written somewhere on a wristband or on his ankle tape when he was quarterback for Pisgah. He was the one that would lead the prayers in the locker room. He was the one that didn't talk like the other boys. He was the one that didn't act like the other boys. He was the one that was the model of Christ. And he was the one that pulled me under his wing as we were roommates and prayed for me and shared the gospel with me. And after three years of living with him, I found his character had become part of my character. Even the things he liked had become a part of the things. There had been this blending of lives so much so that we, sadly, he reflected some of my things and I rejoiced to reflect some of his things. And it's because we had been so close for three years. We went to school together. We ate together, lived together in our apartment. And we just began to reflect. And that taught me something the more time that you spend with someone, the more things that you have in common. Sadly, my wife has become much like me. That's the side you're probably like least. And in some ways, I have become like her. And those are the things that I rejoice in most. And it's because almost 26 years of doing everything together, we just kind of are becoming the same person. And I see this in my mom and dad after 65 years almost. But you do realize that principle works in communion with God, right? You, you do realize the more time that you spend with him personally and privately in communion and in prayer and in rejoicing, the more like you or the more like him you become. His good character becomes your good character. His kindness and patience and love becomes your kindness and patience. And thankfully, it does not reciprocate to him. He doesn't become any more like us. He is holy, holy, holy. But the more time that we spend with him, the more like him we become. The very thing that I want to do for you, I cannot do but it's the very thing that the Spirit of God longs to do in you and for you. Let me call you to Christ this morning. Let me call you to turn your mind, your heart, and your eyes to Him. To fall on your knees spiritually and rejoice in God and may you call Him mine, my Savior. Let's pray.